I'm Mark Walsh. Coming up on today's show, big tech and unions. Companies like Google, instead of fighting unions, should embrace them. Because you know what? If you look at capitals around the world, people have stopped listening to Google. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. Welcome. My name is Mark Walsh. I'm the host of What's Working in Washington. This is a continuation of a show that started back in 2017, hosted by Jonathan Aberman. I'm the new host. And let me tell you why I think you should listen every week. Look, the pandemic has changed a lot of things. In fact, I could argue it's changed almost everything that we used to take for granted. So we're in new territory here. And I hope that with me as your host and the guests we bring on, you get a chance to think about all of those things that are changing, have changed, and will continue to change in all of the facets of what it means to be a citizen, and particularly a citizen of Washington, D.C. So hopefully our guests will enlighten you, maybe entertain you, perhaps challenge you, but they're going to be people that care about things that Washington, D.C. does or affects in their life and yours. What's working and what should work in Washington, D.C. Our guest today is David Goodfriend, an old friend of mine and somebody who always gets me thinking. He worked at the Federal Communications Commission, and I was asking him about why my cell phone bill is so big. And I think you'll be interested in what he and I talked about, because there may be some days coming up when it's going to be cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. We also talked about Amazon, and I wondered, why isn't Amazon unionized? And David and I discussed how union membership is so low in America and how that might change. And lastly, you know what? Per usual, David and I shared a passion together, which is we think that the United States should have an extra state, and it's the District of Columbia. So here's our conversation. I'm interested in your thoughts on the new administration. Uh, clearly, they're getting their sea legs. But I would argue, and a lot of your time has been spent in the um, in, in the labor and unionized and union organization arena, uh, how do you think they're doing? And what are some facets of their behavior that, are really, that you're paying attention to? Well, Mark, as you know, I served in the second term of the Clinton administration in the White House. My job was deputy staff secretary, and my job was to really marshal the paper flow to and from the president and the rest of the staff. So I got a really good sense of what it looks like when the White House works. And by the same token, from the outside, I can tell when a White House really is not working. This White House, the Biden White House, I would argue, runs like a clock. They really have a tight operation. By that, I mean there is clearly well-delineated responsibilities you don't really hear ever about infighting or people leaking to the press when they're upset about something, there is a well-run operation there. The second thing I'll say is that this is a man who ran on a couple of very basic ideas. One is I'm going to bring integrity back to the White House. I think he has done that. The second thing he said, though, is for all of us to really invest in America, bring back things like infrastructure. And we've seen now that Joe Biden I think by virtue of the fact that he has served so long in so many different places in Washington, he really knows how to work it. And in a 50-50 Senate, the infrastructure bill cleared its hurdles with more than enough Republican votes. That's a victory. I think he's doing quite a remarkable job. But what about labor? I guess with a new labor secretary and stuff, labor, you and I have discussed in the past, organized labor has, I think, is at, was at historical low levels quite recently recently. Are they coming off the mat? Do you see new initiatives that organized labor is doing to engage new types of people? Are they fighting back to non-union corporations that are getting huge traction? Where are we there? Well, I think I should disclose to everybody who's listening. I have my own practice. I represent private companies and I represent labor unions. 
And so I have a pretty good idea of, at least within the labor movement, what the perception is. And by far, within labor, people perceive President Joe Biden as the most pro-union president probably since Harry Truman. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a long time Mm -hmm. since we've seen somebody say explicitly, unions are good. Unions help the working people. Unions help America. We grow this country not from Wall Street but from Main Street. And who's that? That's the middle class worker. And Joe Biden isn't just reciting talking points. He lived it. His father, his friends. So there's no question that there's a change in temperature at the White House about organized labor. There's also no question, however, that, as you point out, union density has declined significantly in the United States. In most of the industrialized world today, it's about 30, 33 percent of the workforce is unionized. In the United States, in the 50s and 60s, it was 40, sometimes 50 percent. Today, it's around 10 or less, depending on whether you include public employees. So there's clearly a, a drop in union density. What I think we're seeing, though, is not so much a political issue but something that's happening in the American people where folks who have no idea what a labor union is think it's perfectly reasonable for workers to get together and bargain as a unit. Well, let me break in there because I think we discussed off-air Amazon. You know, the COVID pandemic has, I would suggest, altered the way we view home delivery of everything. Yes. And Amazon's the king in that. So it seems like there's kind of a groundswell. That's a wrong term. Groundswell for people saying – Amazon employees in these giant, you know, humorless humanity, soul-sucking warehouses, and they are, are really doing all the work for us in a post-COVID environment. Shouldn't they have some kind of protection? Do you think that that kind of theory or that kind of emotion is starting to take hold? I absolutely do, and I've seen polling that reflects it. The majority of Amazon users feel some level of guilt using Amazon, and it's largely tied to two things, the impact on small businesses and the impact on workers, Mm -hmm. which is extremely important because it means as a business matter, as a matter of brand equity, Amazon really better pay attention to that. They have to understand that their consumers are increasingly aware of what Amazon is doing behind the smiley face on the side of the truck. Mm -hmm. You know, there are warehouses where people are underpaid and overworked and mistreated. How do I know that? Well, we know from the report that was released by the House Antitrust Subcommittee That whenever Amazon opens a warehouse in a town, the prevailing wage at every warehouse goes down. Hmm. That means that Amazon is driving wages down even in non-Amazon warehouses. Mm -hmm. We know that workers have complained about being surveilled, about being mistreated. We know this. I mean, these are facts. No one's arguing about it. The question I think really is, for those of us who rely on Amazon at home during COVID for deliveries, can we expect the same level of service? I would argue not only can you expect it, but it's going to get better. Mm -hmm. Data shows that when employees are treated well, when they feel that they have some control over their environment, when they feel that they are bought in, they perform better, which is why I think we need to break this paradigm that somehow labor is antithetical to good business. But that – got it. Much of what you said makes sense to me. But then there's the – the uh, furor over Google not being unionized. And I think Google is such a different kind of corporation than Amazon – you know, we all many people think of Google as billionaires strolling around Los Altos, California, and they're you know doing their tech thing. What's the argument for them to be unionized? It's a fascinating argument. We do tend to think of computer programmers as being to write, able to write their own ticket, right? Why would they need a union, right? Mm-hmm. The employees at Google have walked out over disagreements with management, uh, and these are not um, warehouse workers. These are highly trained. Uh, computer programmers, economists, and others. 
And in fact, there's a very interesting thing going on within Alphabet, the parent company of Google. Mm -hmm. There is a union organizing effort, but it's not being done in the typical way where you try to get the whole company to join a union and then negotiate wages. They're doing something by forming kind of an association of workers Hmm. that you can join if you want and not join if you don't want, but it's becoming an increasingly loud and powerful voice within the company. Like a guild almost. Like a guild. And I think there's a real reason why. In fact, I've published this in The Nation magazine. You can look it up online. We, I, I argued that companies like Google, instead of fighting unions, should embrace them. Because you know what? If you look at government head, uh, capitals around the world, people have stopped listening to Google. If they had a union with them who could say, look, we're the workers and this is something that we think would be good public policy, I think Google would actually get a lot farther. Well, I know, I know you have an example that I'd love to have you share with our our listeners, where a union and a private organization team together yes. and use leverage with a larger organization. What? Who were the players in that? Okay, so I had and still have two clients. One is the Communications Workers of America. Mm-hmm. That's the union that's organizing Google. The other is an independent television network called Fuse, sure. Fuse Media. Yeah. It recently went through a management buyout so that today it is one of the only Latino-owned independent media companies in the country. Hmm. Fuse had a dispute with AT&T. Fuse wanted to be renewed, but they wanted to be paid like everybody else. AT&T was saying no and offering terms that really would have meant the death of Fuse. I knew that CWA had its share of differences with AT&T also. AT&T said CWA had, had changed the game. They promised one thing, they did another. They promised to use the tax windfall from the Trump tax cuts to hire more people, and they didn't. They promised to have union agreements transfer over to Warner, and they didn't. So I knew both these clients were a little ticked off at AT AT&T, and all I did was introduce them to each other. Mm -hmm. And the rest is history. Fuse, a Latino-owned company, and CWA, a major American labor union, got together and said, hey, AT&T, don't kill Fuse. We need a Latino voice out there. And you know what happened? A deal got struck. And it was a great example of a company and a labor union working at it. But I just want to add one other thing, Mark. Yeah. Before the labor union was willing to stick its neck out for the company, they had a request. They said, listen, you're not unionized, and you're asking us to go up against a unionized Ah. company. All we want from you, Fuse, is a promise that if your workers want to organize, you'll let them. Yeah. So the CEO of a private company put out a public statement saying, I have no problem with my employees organizing I think it's the right thing to do, and I stand with CWA. And bam, at that moment, they created an alliance that beat AT&T. Well, the name of the show is What's Working in Washington, and David, you've examined, uh, you, you've expressed, rather, the perfect example, I think, of leverage, which means so much in Washington. We're going to take a break in a little bit, but let me let me do a quick lightning round with you before we do. You, All right. You've swum deeply in the waters of telecommunications for many, many years. You were a counsel for one of the FCC commissioners. Yep. Um I believe our mobile communications technology and what we pay for for bandwidth in our mobile devices is some ridiculous multiple of what people pay in India and other major economies. That's right. Why is it so expensive here? Because in the United States, we overemphasize profit. In most of the world, telecommunications policy is done in such a way that we actually ask, is the consumer getting the right price? Is the consumer getting it available enough? We treat it a little bit more like a public resource, which... It is. The wireless frequencies that we're using to talk to people in their cars and homes is public property. It's an FCC license. In most of the world, the providers are given some conditions. You can't, you can't charge too much. 
Okay. Here in the United States, the minute you say rate regulation, yeah. it's like you've just decided to throw grandma out the window. <laughs> People like lose their minds. You can't possibly mean that. This is America. And so what do we have? The highest cost per bit of anywhere in the world. Well, before we take that break, now you've, you've intrigued me. Uh, can you walk me through a pathway where that changes? Sure. Um, it is entirely reasonable to say to a wireless company or any other licensee, if you're going to offer the high-end service, you also must offer a basic, affordable, low-end service. I'm not telling you to charge everybody the same for everything. Just make sure there's a basic level of service at a cheap price for everybody. New York State tried to require that yeah. and got sued oh. successfully, okay? A court blocked that law. But but in the infrastructure bill that is making its way through Congress, there is a provision that says if you accept this funding for broadband build-out, you must offer a low-cost alternative. That's the way to do it. If you want the benefit from the government, from the American people, that's fine. If you take it, though, you have to offer something reasonable and affordable to everybody else. I think that's the way to get there. You're listening to What's Working in Washington. Our guest is David Goodfriend. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. We're going to take a break with more conversations when David and I talk about the lobbying industry. Yeah, it exists here in D.C. And also, what's <laughs> what's the future for our wonderful District of Columbia? So stay tuned. We're taking a break to discuss some ways you might become a little more involved with what's working in Washington. There's several ways. Take a moment to rate us positively or negatively. We'd love to hear from you. Secondly, our audience is an obvious one. Folks that care about Washington, D.C. and the environs. Folks that care about the Federal News Network. Folks that care about our nation. If you'd like to have your message heard by that kind of audience, be sure to contact us for sponsorship opportunities. You can email me directly at walsh at AOL.com. That's W-A-L-S-H at AOL.com. Yes, it's a dated email address, but it still works. Our guest today is David Goodfriend. Let's go to lobby. You are a lobbyist. You are a registered lobbyist, correct? I am, and yes. I'm even willing to admit that you, on this radio network. You are. Well, there are a wide variety of media and other characterizations of lobbyists that get kind of negative. I have always spent a lot of time defending it because, in my experience, way more limited than yours, uh, elected officials do need full information for, to make a wide variety of decisions. And often that information comes from people that care about one side or the other. And lo without lobbyists, I would argue decisions would be far less effective and far less informed and probably far more deleterious to our nation. With that as background, what's the business like today than it was when you first became exposed to it when you first joined government? First of all, Mark, sometimes lobbying does deserve a bad name, and it's usually because money drowns out other voices. So a lobbyist is really just uh, an instrument, a soldier. You know, do you blame the soldier or do you blame the general who gave the orders? Uh, there are big banks and big corporations that can afford to pay a lot of lobbyists and therefore their voice gets heard more than, say, the average person who doesn't have representation. And that's a shame, right? But there are also lobbyists who represent public interest groups or labor unions or others that are speaking for a wide swath. Well, tell us the one you that, that you started for the sports fans. Well, I started a nonprofit called Sports Fans Coalition. And it sounds trivial, but it's not. Sports and the media around sports are one of the biggest industries in the United States. Millions of Americans love it and pay for it, whether they realize it or not, and should have a voice in the making of public policy. So, for example, 29 of the 32 NFL stadiums out there were built with taxpayer money. And yet fans really didn't have a seat at the table in deciding that particular issue. So we lobby as a nonprofit 
Anytime government or public taxpayer money is used, the fans ought to have a benefit. How about giving free tickets to veterans and public school kids, for example, if you're going to use public money to build a stadium? How about making sure that those games are available to everybody, whether or not they can afford to watch it? Little things like that, but they really go a long way. And the biggest win that we ever did was getting the Federal Communications Commission to end the sports blackout rule which had been on the books for 40 years. A round of applause Thank for you. that. I, please, well, re- it was not remind, easy. Remind our, our listeners what the blackout rule sure. was. Sure. Well, uh, starting in 1975, when the NFL said, hey, we didn't sell out enough tickets, so we're going to black out the game locally, the NFL got the Federal Communications Commission to back it up by saying, yeah, and nobody else, not a cable company or anybody else, can show that game either. So it was sort of a federal rule that backed up a really obnoxious private rule by the league. It was extortion, in my personal opinion. Well, it certainly showed the power of the NFL. So I declared war on the NFL, and they tried to crush me. They tried to get every every one of their uh, powerful lobbyists and lawyers to work against me. But I'm proud to say that because of people around the country writing letters to the FCC saying, look, I, I can't afford to go to the game or I'm in a wheelchair and I couldn't go to the game if I wanted to. When you black out a game, it, it hurts me. That's my team. I want to watch. We won five to zero unanimous vote. Republicans and Democrats alike voting with the fans against the NFL to end the sports blackout rule. It was a great victory. Now, that's an example of a lobbyist, me, or any lobbyist, really, trying to do something in the public interest. So you can't really throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're not all terrible people, but there are some out there that I think abuse the system and they should be called on. But your your original assertion was that it's really about volume and dollars, which is fine. So your point, though, is that if I'm a, a member of a huge org, a huge uh, marketplace, let's pretend it's AT&T, and I'm using that only as an example. I'm okay. not suggesting they're wrong or they're a bad company, but they can afford to have four, five, 10, 15 lobbyists. They can afford to have millions, if not tens of millions of dollars annually spent on lobbying. And your point is that that literally just drowns out the ability for, oh, I don't know, a smaller uh, a smaller connectivity company or maybe even a not-for-profit consumer re- representation group to get access to those offices of congressional people, staffers, and senators, right? Let's not stop with lobbying. Let's okay. talk about buying advertising on television, on the Internet. Uh, let's talk about grassroots campaigns. Everything costs money. So by definition, there are some very well-financed interests that do have a bigger megaphone. But I have proven, including with the example I just gave you, that it's possible for a small group of people with the right message and the right kind of integrity to get a win, to get it done. And I think it happens more frequently than people realize. But you asked me a different question, Mark, and I'm, I'm, I want to get to the, your question. You asked, is the lobbying business different today? And the fact of the matter is, after January 6th, I feel like the answer is yes. Mm. Everything is different today. Okay. I teach as an adjunct at GW Law School and at Georgetown Law School. And last year, or rather last semester, my first night of class was January 6th, 2021. Wow. And it was all online. It was an all Zoom class. And I started my class and I looked at everybody staring back at me, you know, in their cameras. And I said, everybody, let's put your computers down, your pencils down. We have to talk about what just happened today. Okay. This is a class about how government is supposed to work. This is a class about how advocacy and process are supposed to work. And you could legitimately look back at me and say, a bunch of people just stormed the Capitol. How are we supposed to take any of this seriously? And my answer to you is this. If we don't believe in the system, nobody will. Mm -hmm. If we lawyers, yes, lobbyists, public advocates, 
people who do this stuff for a living, if we don't believe that this is actually a sacred and good democracy and carry out advocacy as it's supposed to be done, nobody will. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to teach you this class and you're going to learn these things. We're going to study legislative process. We're going to study the regulatory process. We're going to study how you be an advocate. And we're going to do it because if we don't, who will? Mm Mm-hmm. And it was a great start to the class. Everybody was like, oh, okay, let's go. Let's get yeah. started. And as, we start a class. As Reagan said, if not us, who? If not now, when? But that— I think but, it was Rabbi Akiba, but go ahead. But it's a, but it's a great quote, and Ron <laughs> Reagan stole it. That being said, though, let's get back to your you know, size versus you know, like an AT&T or a large player or a small right. player. I do think that a portion of—this is a way longer conversation. A portion of January 6th was almost a reflection of how— very well-heeled lobbying efforts are able to control marketplaces, people's lives, uh, institutions in ways that makes them feel powerless. Yes. I'm not excusing January 6th, but I do think that dichotomy is part of it. The, listen, Mark, there is a dotted line, in my view, that connects the Black Lives Matter protester with somebody who was at the Capitol on January 6th. I'm not saying that they're okay. equivalents. I'm Let's saying, go there. I'm going to go there. All right, okay? finish the line. I—, I think that I'm most sympathetic to the Black Lives Matter protester, and I'm not at all happy with the person who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. But what I think they may have in common is a sense of frustration Mm -hmm. with the status quo. Mm -hmm. And just imagine if that frustration were tapped into in a way that we got real change done. Can you imagine if everybody who's ever marched in a Black Lives Matter protest, and everybody who ever marched uh, uh, for Trump got together and said, we don't think the system's working and we'd like to see some changes. I think you'd see some big changes. The problem is what's always happened in this country is that people in power find ways to divide the masses against one another. Okay? If you go to the African American Museum uh, of History, you'll Which see, I haven't been, but I really want to go. It's really worth going. In the, in the very basement floor, they show how the laws in the 1600s in Virginia established slavery by race. Mm. Why did they do it? Because the white indentured servants and the black slaves got together, and that was very, very scary to the mm. people in power. Yep. So they established slavery by race to divide that population. I would suggest to you that our body politic would operate a lot better if people jettisoned these superficial divisions by race, by party, by, uh, by anything, and just asked, how do we get to have a better living standard? How do we get to have higher wages? How do we get to have more reasonable prices? Because we feel like we're not being heard. Mm. And I think if you could do that, you could really make change for the better. And that'll probably happen right after world peace, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, look, no, no, look, I'll give you a straight answer. Okay. This is a straight answer. Straight answer. Uh, I told you earlier in the show that I represent labor unions. Yep. I am a member of SEIU Local 500. My parents were labor union members. Okay, what do you have in a labor union? People from all walks of life, different races, different genders, different identities. What do they have in common? They have a very similar income. Mm-hmm. They have a very similar way of making a living. Mm-hmm. And when they get together to say, we need better wages, we need better workplace protections, stuff happens. I think if we brought back more labor union membership, it would have a calming effect on this sort of hyper-partisan divisiveness. Because quite frankly, the people that share the same income bracket have a lot more in common with each other than anybody would like to admit. You are a master at circling your logic so that it all starts to make sense. (laughs) And I'm a fan of that. Listen, we've got a little bit of time together here on What's Working in Washington. Our guest is David Goodfriend. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. Let's talk about the city of Washington, D.C. Ah, yes. Yes, you are are a denizen of uh, of its halls and its power. And I'm interested in your thoughts about where the city is today as an operating entity, 
uh, as a place where venture capital, I mean, I, you know, I'm an entrepreneur in startups. Right. But what's your sort of overall sense of the city? First of all, it's a disgrace in the United States of America that almost a million people are not fully represented. We should have statehood now. You're here. Second of all, it's one of the most dynamic cities in the world. And I'm not just talking about the monuments. I'm talking about the restaurants, the music, the architecture. I mean, just in the 30 years that I've lived here, I've seen entire new neighborhoods come up in incredible ways. I'm talking about the 8th Street Corridor. Mm -hmm. If you go from Union Station, the main train station, and start heading away from it down 8th Street, you're surrounded by incredible restaurants and clubs and great history. Black America has an incredible amount of history right there in the 8th Street Corridor. Okay. I'll give you another one. The Wharf. I'll give you another one. Down by Nat Stadium. These yep. are all neighborhoods that were really suffering that have blossomed into these incredible places where everybody loves to have a good time. So D.C. is a wonderful place to be, and I think it really should be a state. And I do think that one of the, one of its signature qualities is the kind of inclusiveness that we've had here You know, for, for almost a, a century, I would argue. Yeah. So it's a great city. I love D.C. So the economics of those two areas, you talked about Wharf and, and Nat Stadium— for those listening who have not been to those two areas, I think both of us would highly encourage you to try. The economics are, always have to precede the revival, as we know. And was there any sense, if you could have gone back 10 years, 15 years, and could have invested in an area, would you have chosen those two, or were they a surprise to you? Well, obviously, they would have been a surprise to me. But there is a there is a kind of underbelly to all this that we should talk about as well, which is there is also a booming homeless population in the district right now. Correct. And for me, you know, I have an office near Union Station, near 8th Street. I see all these spectacular condos going up and homeless people living in tents right below them. Yeah. That's a failure. That's a big F, okay? We can do better than that. And I think the way to do better at that is simply to require developers to make sure that we're building enough affordable housing as a condition to building. Remember when I said to you, how can we have cheaper broadband? Yep. How about every time you take a public dollar, you got to offer a lower cost option? How about this? When developers build those spectacular, and I do mean spectacular condos, we got to have a little bit more affordable housing in the city. That'd be a good touch. Yeah. I mean, but but for now, for now, we do have an amazing set of neighborhoods that are booming in D.C. Hopefully that means more revenue to the city and schools and public services and everything else. David? But it's a problem. David, you're a capitalist with a heart. I wish, ah. there, were, I wish there were more like you. Final moment. Make yeah. a crazy wild prediction about what happens in Washington, D.C. in the next five years. Wow. Uh, okay. In the next five years, the Washington football team will actually get a name that sticks. <laughs> How about that? Well done. Okay. And, and probably darn, darn easy to fulfill. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. We've been joined by David Goodfriend today. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. You know, I often find myself wondering, what's great about Washington, D.C.? And then I'm reminded about our business, our government, our arts, our not-for-profits, our education arenas. All are fantastic and special not only to our nation, but really to the world. I'm glad I live here. I hope you are too. And I hope that our show continues to give you some enlightenment, some information, some actionable intelligence, and hopefully some enthusiasm about what works in Washington, D.C. So once again, thanks for listening. Our executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Our content intern is Anna DeGraff. And the theme music is performed by the Aberman Brothers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.